we uh, started this uh, teaching series last time we had one of our breakfasts breakfasts but that was back in September so we skipped a month so it's been a couple of months and uh, we were just starting and so I thought it would be useful to sort of remember a little bit about what we said last time and the title of our talk last time was Rethinking the Nature of the Church and what I did was to talk about five words or metaphors that the scripture uses for the church, uh, for the people of God in community, maybe you'd want to say. And the thing we noticed about that was it uh, is not as organizational as we typically think and operate. So uh, part of the goal of this study is to kind of rethink what if it's more organic and less organizational. Um, And so on the handout this morning, I have the same list I had at the bottom of the handout last time to think uh, more biblically about the church as organism, not organization. Now, organisms have some organization, so it's not like you got to throw out the whole idea of organization. Organisms are organized, but they are not organizations. So that's kind of the direction we're thinking. And so we had this list, and in the organism of the church, it's more about who we are than it is about what we get done. Now, we'd want to say uh, that doesn't mean there's nothing to get done. It's just which of these is the point. Uh, And in the leadership of the church, the leaders are called shepherds, not CEOs. They're called elders, not managers. They lead by example and they're specifically prohibited from leading by lording or exercising raw authority. Uh, the, the organism is uh, an organism, the message of it is the gospel of God, not the law of God. Well, that doesn't mean the law, and you'll see this throughout the New Testament, that doesn't mean the law of God has been canceled or no longer exists or no longer has any value. It's just been superseded and fulfilled in a certain way that transforms how we live together in the community. Uh, It's an organism of grace, and organizations are merit-based. Our fellowship in the body of Christ does not depend on our performance. Uh, 
It, we operate by faith, not by works. It's, uh, the motivation is joy, not compulsion. Uh, <clears throat> we have a life together, not a set of objectives. Uh, now, that doesn't mean we never have sets of objectives, but it does mean those things are not the point. We don't want us, we don't want to be distracted from the life by our formation and, and pursuit of various objectives. And we see this exemplified in the life of Christ. It's an incarnation of something. It's not a simple spokesperson. Jesus is the incarnation of God. Meeting him in person was meeting God in person. He's not just a prophet. He's not just speaking for God. And so in the church, we're called to be the body of Christ. We're called to incarnate the life of faith, not just talk about it. And so we are a community and not a company. All of these were just various ways I brainstormed, really, to communicate this idea, what do I mean when I say organism, not organization? And then last time we talked about these five descriptors or metaphors, maybe you could call them, for the church in that we find in the scripture. The first is the word church, which means assembly or gathering. We're going to talk some more about that today. And I'm sort of going to, I'm, right now at least, I'm planning the approach for this whole course is to follow through on each of these words and kind of uh, press down into each. So we'll start today with church and then uh, move to body, household, temple, and flock. And those five things, uh, those are the five words the scripture uses to say what the church is. <clears throat> so today we're going to talk about the word church or the word, the, the Greek word in the New Testament is ekklesia. Uh, the, the papimento word, the Spanish word, the Latin word in all the Latinate languages for church is just exactly this word. It's just transliterated. Iglesia is just we're saying this exact same word and calling it a different language. I don't know where we get the word church in England uh, or Kirk in uh, Scotland or in it's Kirk in Dutch, I think. Yeah, Dutch. Do you know the German word? Yeah, so that that's a I don't know much about the roots of that word. Uh, I should look that up, but uh, in in the New Testament, the word is ecclesia. <clears throat> now, the word ecclesia is uh, is a is a compound of the word out, ek, out of ek. That's the Greek preposition, and kaleo, which means. Kaleo, call. It is, in fact, the root of the English word call. 
Uh, so it means a group of people called out. So we, uh, and then over time that word came to mean an assembly of people. So you gathered a group of people by calling them together and calling them out of their houses to into the meeting. And so uh, church and ecclesia is an assembly, uh, a group of people called to meet. And over time, of course, that came to mean the sort of regular meeting for worship that happens on a weekly basis from the very beginning in the church. And this was grounded in the Jewish synagogue, for which we might use this word, assembly. Uh, and the word synagogue means something very similar. It means uh, meet together. <laughs> That's literally the, what the word synagogue means. It's a meeting. And, of course, the Jewish synagogue had a weekly uh, meeting pattern going back to the creation. It's on the seventh day, so the synagogue had, meets on the Sabbath. Uh, and so we have this very ancient, I could argue, back to the beginning of humanity, concept of the gathering for worship on a weekly basis. Obviously, in the church, that shifted to the first day of the week very early. It's recorded in the book of Acts uh, <clears throat> in honor of the resurrection. So the resurrection happened on the first day of the week, so the meeting for worship shifted from the seventh day to the first day. Uh, <clears throat> well, so we meet together. So uh, what do we mean when we use the word church? So I've given you sort of a definition here. The called out assembly. A church is an assembly of believers who meet for worship regularly under the oversight of a team of elders. Now, I haven't demonstrated that last part just yet, but that's uh, kind of fundamental in the New Testament organization, if I can use that word, of the church. Uh, and so there's something going on here. There's a, there's a group of people who sort of watch after this gathering. And those people are called elders. This also has its roots in the Jewish synagogue in the time of the New Testament. So in the Jewish community, certain men in the synagogue would have been recognized as elders. In the modern context, we are very tempted to say something like this. There's a certain group of men who are recognized to be in charge. And <clears throat> I, I almost hesitated to use the word authority in the title here. Because there's actually in the words of Jesus almost like a warning against authority. He says this, 
you know how the Gentiles are. Their leaders lord it over them, exercising authority. It's not supposed to be like that with us. But whoever wants to be first among you should be the slave of you. It's literally upside down. Now, I have my own evaluation of my own experience in church and my own understanding of the history of church is we've never taken the Lord very seriously about that. We use an expression, servant leadership, by which we mostly mean leadership. (laughs) And I think the real point of what the Lord's getting at here is leading servanthood. In other words, the emphasis is on the servanthood The servanthood ends up being a followable example. And so it leads, but its primary function and mode is servant, slave, be the slave of all. And his given example in that very context is his own life, where he says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And he doesn't say to lead by serving. He just says to serve. Uh, I'm just trying to get us all to try. This is very hard to grasp, I find. Very hard to grasp because we're Gentiles. You know how the Gentiles are, Jesus explained. He said, you know how we are. We have a hard time grasping how to, how to be leading servants. So I'm just going to confess that and say, okay, I'm, but I want us all to try to follow the Lord in kind of flipping our understanding here. And again, I don't think we're going to get to the point where we would say, so elders never decide what we're all going to do, because they do. I don't want to say the elders don't have authority, because they do. But there's something fundamentally shifted. And so I have here in the sort of thesis statement of today's talk, authority in the church is fundamentally different. Fundamentally different from the authority exercised in the world's institutions and organizations. So I want want myself and our elders to work to pursue the, well, following the Lord in leading servanthood. So we are kind of talking about, when we use the word church, We're talking about uh, some kind of structure of authority, a gathering, a community, a gathering of people. The main 
thing they do is meet. They get together and they have a meeting. And in the development of the tradition, it's a, it's a weekly meeting. There's no prohibition against meeting more often. In fact, in the book of Acts, in the early days, they met daily. So we could meet daily, we could meet any day, we could meet a hundred different ways in a hundred different little groups or whatever, but we have a weekly assembly. This is why in the present times, the way we're functioning as a church is very suboptimal because we are not meeting. Well, we're kind of meeting. That's really how we have to say it. We're kind of meeting. Everyone's invited to participate. We, we put on the meeting, but you have to meet without actually coming together. We're not really calling you out of your house. <laughs> You're sort of, we, we have the technology these days to meet without meeting. Well, I believe God's intention is that we meet and really meet. But anyway, I'm getting a little off the point. <clears throat> I want to move then to talking about who has authority in the church. And now I've given you the list here, and I've given you a bunch of scripture references, and I'm going to just kind of trot through this list without reading all these texts. Uh, I think for the most part, this list, uh, I don't have to prove it to you. I think you're going to just say, well, yeah, obviously that's kind of the authority structure. So let's begin at the top. The, the source and seat of all authority is God the Father. Jesus himself recognizes the authority of the Father in his own life. And uh, if we were going to distinguish between the persons of the Trinity, I think one of the ways we would distinguish them is uh, the Father is the source of this authority, and the Son is the executive of the authority. So uh, it's not that the Son doesn't possess all the authority of being God, it's just they live in that relation to one another. We're in the deep mystery of the Trinity here. There's not a subordination. The Son is not less than God, even though the Son submits himself to the authority of the Father. This is one of the ways we think like Gentiles. We can't figure out how someone can submit to someone else and not be subordinate to that person. Now, I think the Dutch culture is much better at this where they have these relationships where somebody's subordinated, but still really genuinely considered as an equal. Uh, and so in, we might be able to see this in some cultural contexts and other cultural contexts, we'd see a much greater uh, authority distinction. Uh, but in any case, in the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, there is a source of authority. And so the Lord Jesus recognizes the authority of the Father. He says, I only do what he gives me to do. And then, uh, obviously then, the Lord, hello, Lord, that's the title. And if you read the New Testament and you come across the word Lord, it is 
almost always referring to the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lord, the head of the church. And so uh, obviously Jesus has authority in the church. And of course, the Father and the Son are both God, so they have authority uh, over all things. Then, of course, we have the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Clearly in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is, is uh, presented as giving clear, distinct direction to believers and to the body, the community of believers. Uh, he is to be obeyed. Uh, and so the Holy Spirit has authority in the church. We're going to see this a little later on, especially when we talk about the church as the body, that it's the Holy Spirit that actually places believers into their positions in the body of Christ. It's the Holy Spirit who imparts each believer with his or her spiritual gift or gifts that uh, with which they function in mutual service in the church. And so the Holy Spirit administers a great deal of the organism of the body of Christ. Then uh, below those three, now those are the those. That's God. So all we've said so far is God is the authority in the church, and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, operate as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in that authority in the church. <clears throat> then, we take a leap down, <laughs> way down, and we uh, find the apostles. And of course, the apostles were personally commissioned by the Lord Jesus for this function. And now I'm using the word apostle here to refer to the apostles, not somebody we might imagine today who might have a ministry that's apostle-like or a gift of apostleship, uh, of particular sentness. That's what the word apostle means, sent. Um, so here we're talking about the apostles, uh, the eleven, and Paul. And perhaps we find some evidence in the New Testament that there were maybe some others. <clears throat> but these people had special authority. In fact, when the church was determining which documents should be included and named as the Word of God, the Scriptures, the, the single most important feature of a document was, was it written by an apostle? Or does it have apostolic authority? So even, say, the book of Mark, for example, which was not written by an apostle, was considered and we would consider it so today, to be written under the immediate authority of the Apostle Peter. And so it's apostolic in authority, even though it was penned by a disciple of that apostle. We would say the same thing about various books, including, say, uh, uh, the book of Hebrews. 
because we don't know who wrote it, but it has apostolic authority. But in any case, uh, the apostles came to have uh, the authority authority to operate in the name of Jesus himself. So what you'll see, for example, read the book of 2 Corinthians, just read the whole thing, because what it is is a defense of Paul's apostolic authority. And he says repeatedly, look, I could just order you as an apostle. I could just order you, but that's not how we operate in the church Oh, that's an echo of Christ, no lording. He says, I could just order you, instead I appeal to you. Because this is the mode of the exercise of authority in the life of the body of Christ, is appeal, not demand, not command. So Paul speaks the word of God. (laughs) And while he's penning the scriptures, resists lording. Very interesting. But in any case, the apostles clearly have authority in the church. The apostles establish the first churches and the apostles appoint the first elders in the churches. Then, of course, we have the scripture. Now, the scripture maybe should be number four and the apostles number five. the, The apostles are the authors of the New Testament scriptures, but they would have considered themselves to be under the authority of the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, Jesus considered himself to be under the authority of the Old Testament scriptures and to be the author of the Old Testament scriptures, to be the subject of the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus said, look, if you believed Moses, you'd believe me because Moses wrote about me. Oh, my goodness. But in any case, uh, the scriptures now in in the modern age, we might ask, Where's the authority in the church? Well, Martin Luther and the other reformers gave uh, absolutely clear answer to the question, where is the authority in the church? And what they said is, it is not in the elders of the church, the bishops of the church. In fact, those elders of the church are subject to the word of God, which is the scriptures. One way we could look at this, uh, I have it here, is to say this, the scriptures are an embodiment of all of the above. (laughs) The, The scriptures, how do we know the authority of God, Father, Son, Spirit? In the scriptures is how we know. How do we know the authority of the apostles in the scriptures. The apostolic message of the church is complete and contained in the scriptures. So now at this point, we take another 
giant leap down. <laughs> giant. And to the elders of the church. And these folks are known as elders, they're known as overseers, they're known as shepherds, they're known as stewards, teachers, pastors. <clears throat> and they have a certain authority in the church. Now, if you study what the scripture says about elders, and the other Bible words for this are overseer, uh, <clears throat> and that's where we get the, the uh, word episcopal. Episcopi, epi is over, scope is scope, <laughs> overseer. And uh, <clears throat> so the word uh, bishop is actually an English translation of the word, the biblical word overseer. <clears throat> Very early in the history of the church, the, there, there we developed a distinction between bishops and elders. That's not a biblical dis dis distinction. In the scriptures, there are two words for the same office. Sorry, I don't even really mean to talk about that. But if we study the... It's interesting. Good. <laughs> if, we, if we study elder, the, the office of elder in the church, what, one thing we notice is that elders, the, some el sometimes on a few occasions, elders are appointed by the apostles or by the surrogates of the apostles. So Paul says to Titus, he tells Titus how to appoint elders. Uh, <clears throat> so in that sense, they're chosen. But one of the things you'll notice as you read the scripture and the biblical description of the, how, to, how should we choose people to serve in this role is it's really a, a, it's really a system of recognizing people more than elevating people. You know what I mean? Uh, so while they're appointed, who do we appoint? We appoint the people who already function in this way, who are recognizable elders. And so at some point we sort of make it official. Uh, and so in, our, in, the, in the rules of our church, for example, this is, this is what we're trying to do, is notice somebody who is an elder and put them in the position. Uh, so it's a sort of official, to appoint someone as an elder is kind of to officially recognize that they are an elder. The other thing you see in the Bible is this is always a group of people. The idea of a solitary elder is an exceptional idea. You would not normally do that. You might only do that when it was really no choice. Like you only had one person available. Um, <clears throat> and then I think from a biblical point of view, that one person should be primarily about developing some more people to also serve in the same way.
certainly you see among the apostles a priority on the development of elders. So that is all just designed to answer this question, well, who has this? Who has authority in the church? And always remembering when we say authority in the church, we don't mean what we all think when we use the word authority. We mean somehow, one way or another, this kind of upside-down Jesus concept of leading servant. All right, so that leads to this question, what sort of authority is it? And I just wanted to talk about a few things with very little time. And I've given you here also a list of scripture references. These are the references, most of them are references where Paul is describing who you should have as an elder, what kind of, what are the, we call them qualifications, though honestly I don't like that word, qualifications, because it sounds like I'm in a company now and not a community. But okay, I don't want to quibble too hard over that. So what sort of character does this person need to possess? So what kind of authority is it? Well, the f- first thing I want to say about it is it's, it's primarily described as teaching authority. And if you read what the scripture says, uh, you know, Paul says to Timothy, pay attention to what I've taught you, pass that on to a group of people who will pass it on to the next group after them. That's all in uh, 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. There's, he, he says in, in a very short sentence, he gives four generations. Him, Timothy, the guys Timothy teaches and the guys they teach. He's telling Timothy, when you pass this on, be sure to pass it on to people who will pass it on. The point is, guard the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is the priority, the teaching, the doctrine of the gospel. So the, the authority of the elder, this is, I would say, the primary role of the elders in this or any sound church is maintain the true gospel in the teaching of that church. Uh, <clears throat> so... Uh, Uh, Okay, so it's a teaching authority. Immediately, I want to say, that doesn't mean it's an academic authority. In other words, when I say teaching, most of us think school, where I learn a bunch of facts and ideas to put in my head. But we need a more comprehensive concept of teaching, In Scripture, teaching is always a holistic sort of thing, heart, soul, mind, and strength. It involves the whole person. It's imparted uh, by a process you could call imitation. In fact, Paul uses this word in, in his instructions to Timothy. In 2 Timothy, he says, imitate what you've been taught. And when he describes what Timothy's been taught, It's a bunch of life experiences 
not just a set of doctrines. So it's the gospel, which is a set of doctrines, but it's a set of doctrines with a life in the community. So uh, it's leadership and personal relationship. It's oriented around and toward the truth, with a capital T, the Lord Jesus, the truth. It's about, when I say it's a teaching authority, it's about facilitating people to function together as believers in a message. All right, so it's a teaching authority. Number two, it's not lording. And we've already talked about this quite a bit. It's not lording. I, again, will confess to you, it is hard for me to figure out what authority means that is not lording. So I think of authority as lording. So we've got to work, figure, think, think, think. Uh, And I think where we come around to is something like sacrificial service, Christ being the primary example, who set aside his position, who humbled himself to put himself beneath us in order to exalt us together with him. So as a, an elder, as a person with this authority in the church, again, I'm, I humble myself relative to the other people in the community. I put myself, as Paul said, I consider myself less important. Yeah, okay. I come around to something like this. It's the authority of an older brother. It's not a lording authority. In other words, my older brother, he, I can learn a lot. He's a good example because he's a good older brother. Although he wasn't always. But he could tell me what to do in a certain way. But if he came to me and he said, I'm gonna, you have to do what I say, I'd just say, no, I don't. I don't have to do what you say. You're not the boss of me. You're, I've said those exact words to that person. You're not the boss of me. You're not my father. My father has real authority. You're just my big brother. I respect you, and if you suggest something to me, I'll probably do it. Even if it's horribly foolish. Trust me, I've done some horribly foolish things at his suggestion. And we both suggested stuff to my younger brother. It was a bad idea. That's the sort of authority I might exercise in your life as a pastor in the church, as an elder in the church. It's that older brother authority. It's not lording. Then uh, here's a big list of things elders do. By the way, this is the content of the emails I just sent out to everybody about thinking about what kind of people you have as elders. Uh, And uh, I gave this, this list with some descriptions. Here's the things elders do, the task. They're shepherds, 
They're overseers. They're teachable teachers. They're stewards. This is as close as we get to I can tell you what to do. They're like God's stewards, the house managers. So this is God's house and they're the house managers. Uh-huh. Okay. They're not they're not the landlord. Okay. Uh they're follow they're followable followers. And they pray. <clears throat> this is what we talked about the last time in the last breakfast uh, for a minute. We said something like, as a shepherd, I'm not even the shepherd. Like there's the shepherd, and then I'm like a shepherd who works for the shepherd. And so, how do you consider me, one of the sheep, a shepherd? I'm the sheep that looks up to keep track of where the shepherd is. That's, that's what we mean when we call me a shepherd. I'm the one who can look around at the other sheep and say, hey, he's over here. This way. This way. So calling me a shepherd is really honoring beyond what anyone is due. But it also describes how I would function, right? I'm, what I'm about is leading the sheep to the good grass. Uh, <clears throat> the word overseer is a word that means take care of more than it means take charge of. Then we've got this whole list of character qualities. Elders should be mature, and that means not just old, but also wise. They should be trustworthy and responsible. They should be thoughtful, clear-headed, they can think critically. They can evaluate an argument. The scripture gives us the responsibility of refuting bad teaching. <clears throat> uh, they should be friendly and generous. The Bible uses the word hospitable. I don't, you know, my stuff is anyone's stuff. I don't need to hold on to anything too tightly because I've got the good shepherd taking care of me so I can share anything with you. And then we have this quality, holy. <laughs> and I thought, oh, wow, that word, among all these words, all these words that Paul gives first to Timothy and then to Titus about what kind of person an elder should be, and then he says, holy. And that word just pops out holy. And here's what it means. Utterly set apart to God in Christ by the Spirit. This person's life belongs to God in Christ by the Spirit. They see themselves as His. 
they practice Romans 12:1, present your body as a living sacrifice to God. <clears throat> I think this might be the main thing you should say about them, is they are truly devoted Christians. And then there's one more thing. They're eager. They serve as elders for the joy of serving as elders, even though sometimes serving as an elder seems unjoyful because elders end up dealing with everything. But they love serving the church. They love being in the community of the body of Christ so much that they want to help everyone else with that. They're eager. Uh, The scripture says in uh, 1 Timothy, where Paul's giving these qualities, he says, if anyone desires the office, and that, that word desire, he desires... He, he is pursuing a good thing. <laughs> it's a good thing to serve as a leading servant in the church. And then in 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, Paul says, shepherd the church where you find yourself, not under compulsion, not because it needs doing, but eagerly, eagerly, he uses this very word. In other words, he's saying, because you love to do it. Uh, and so one of the things I think we all want to be looking for when we're thinking about an elder is, does he love eldering? One of the ways you can tell someone loves eldering is they do it even when they're not in the office. They do it because they love doing it. They, they become a leading servant whether anyone notices that they are or not. And so our goal in nominating, picking, selecting people to serve in this role is spot those people. Uh, sorry, I really didn't want this to become a talk about how do we pick elders, except it's kind of unavoidable. But to talk about what sort of authority God is looking for in the church, and it's not this—it's not an overbearing authority. It's a—it's a get under and lift authority. Uh, and. <clears throat> Very different. It's very different. As I was studying these qualities in the last few weeks, I I began to notice things that weren't in the list that we often expect from this group of people in the church. Here's something that's not mentioned in the New Testament or anywhere else in the Bible to look for in uh, people in authority in God's community, vision. Str- 
strangely absent. I mean, come on, how can that be not in the list? I mean, I got to think about that. But I think the reason it's not in the list is because the vision has been given. And it comes from the Lord, not the little shepherds. So it's not that there isn't a vision. Uh huh. Okay. Well, I'm working on it. Yeah, and it's not to say that these elders wouldn't do that from time to time in a useful way. It's just an observation that it's strangely not there. And other things we've already mentioned, the, the very word governance, there's, a, there's a, actually a spiritual gift of administration. Or, and the, the word is kubernesis, it's the word from which we get the English word governor. And there's a spiritual gift of that not to be found in any of these descriptions of elders. In fact, it's only found in the one spot where it's describing a spiritual gift. Strange. The word authority. Never instructed. In fact, if we take what Jesus said, it's instructed against. Man, there's some strange stuff going on here. The the church is, I have a growing conviction, the church is not to operate like other human organizations and institutions. It is to be really different and Really, in many of these ways, it strikes me as kind of upside down, not as expected. And so even as we function together as elders in the church, we don't do that like the board of directors of a corporation. Uh, Yeah, it's different. It's organism over organization.